Good evening, everyone. Let me just pray briefly before we start to look at God's Word together. Father God, we, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true and that we can trust it. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we can know how to understand the world that's around us, so that we might see rightly. So we pray, Lord, that as we look at this um, amazing passage this, this evening, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to um, believe the words and trust in you as we ought. And I, Lord, ask as someone who has poured my mind over this passage for a while now, Lord, I pray that you would um, give my lips utterance um, of your truth. And I pray, Lord, that those things which come from you w- would help us grow as a family. But Lord, those things which are not from you, those things I just get wrong, Lord, I pray that they would be forgotten. And I pray above all things that you would be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The temple in the first century... Um, was a sight to behold. It, it really was. It, was. it was an amazing place. I mean, built by, by Herod the Great to show off his glory, um, really, to show off his prowess. Um, but it was an amazing place that the people, when they saw it from a distance, were, would be amazed. I mean, the, the descriptions in the, in, in, by the historians of the day are of these humongous, heavy, white stones that gleamed in the sun from a distance. So that when people could see Jerusalem on its hill, they would wonder about this building. But not just the white, glorious stones. I mean, as you go in further inside the temple, you get to the the Holy of Holies, you get to the the inner sanctuary. And this is a a massive structure at the the heart of the temple where only the priests could go. And the outer walls of this building were covered in gold, pure gold. So, So some of the ancient historians that write about this describe that when the sun shone in all its brilliance, It radiated from the gold on this building and it looked like a second sun was shining in Jerusalem. That was the glory of that temple. It was an astounding building. One of the wonders of of, of the world in the day. So it's no wonder that when the disciples um, left Jerusalem after spending time in the temple, some of them looked back at this great building, saw it standing there at a distance. And of course, Jesus was with them, and, and, and they grabbed Jesus, and this disciple says to him, as he's leaving in verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And the temple was important to him and to the other Jews. It was a place of physical security. It, it was the place that represented God's presence with his people. It was of social security. It was a place where, where people gathered socially, okay, and, and they found help and support when needed. It was a place of political security. It was where, where Jews did business in the day and where, where people gathered to hear um, the, the wisdom of the, of, the, of the priests. And of course, it was a place of religious security. It was where Jews could go in a, in a chaotic world to, 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 to be purely Jewish and to be surrounded by all the things that made them feel safe and secure. God's presence with his people. It was wonderful. But then along comes Jesus and he bursts this guy's bubble. In verse 2, he says, do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, to us, 
we, we kind of might lose the significance of this statement, but this is an enormous thing to say to Jews in the first century. I mean, they can't imagine a world where the temple isn't standing. To, to describe the temple being destroyed is like saying the world is going to end. And that's what's in Peter, James and John and Andrew's mind as they come to Jesus. As they go to him, they question him about these things because this, of course, is troubling them. They ask a question about the, the end of the world and destruction. Tell us, in verse 4, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that, that, that they are all about to be fulfilled? It's commonly understood as you read um, commentaries on this that, that actually the disciples are asking two questions, really, all wrapped into one. Because they have this worldview that the temple is, is connected and it just can't disappear. And it's basically this. When will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question that they're asking, kind of obvious. And the second one is, when are all things going to be accomplished? When is everything going to have its fulfillment? And in their minds, those two things had to fit together. And Jesus answers their question, or their questions. Um, but, but there is debate, if I'm honest, about where one bit is being answered and where the other bit is being answered. And I'm just going to give a, a couple of disclaimers now as we're talking about the end of the world. Um, the first thing is this. Um, I'm not going to cover everything on this subject in this passage. I just can't do it. I can't cover everything that could be covered in this passage. I just can't do it. Thousands of books, tons of scholars over the ages have spent years and dedicated decades of their lives to understanding the truths in this passage. And I have 25 minutes maybe to kind of get this stuff across to you. But that's not my aim to do that this evening. My aim is, is to give you an under, a broad understanding of what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples. And that's all I need to do. So some of you will be disappointed that I'm not going to go down every eschatological and tunnel that you could possibly find. And others of you will be relieved that I'm not going to go down every eschatological tunnel. Because what if you don't know what the word eschatological means? And I can barely say it. Yeah, that's all right. You don't need to worry about that stuff this evening. Basically, that just means study of the end times, study of end things. But we're not going to go into every detail. The second thing I want to say is that as we talk about the end of the world, I'm just aware that this is a very strange thing. It's not the sort of thing that most people talk about, is it? If you're not a Christian here this evening, or if you're a new Christian, you're kind of thinking, this is a weird subject. Why are they talking about this? Well, the reason we're talking about it is because Jesus talks about it. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we have to cover this. And we should cover this because we want to give you the full counsel of God. But also, I just want to push you a little bit more just to think about this. If this is strange to you, look at the world around us at the moment. Is this how you always want it to be? Is it? The world with pain and suffering and sadness and wars and rumors of wars. You don't want it to be that way forever, do you? Well, Jesus tells us the only hope we have is that God will put things right. And as we look at this passage this evening, I, I want you to see how God is going to be working in these final days and how he is going to put everything right in the end. And that truly is a wonderful thing to hope in. So they're my disclaimers that I just felt I needed to say. Well, as these disciples are looking at this great big temple and they're looking at this glorious building, I wondered what, if Jesus were with us today, what would we want to point out to him? You know, I was thinking, you know, maybe we said, Jesus, come look. 
let me give you a tour of the King Center. You know, it's this beautiful building, and we do so much stuff here during the week. Maybe it isn't that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe um, as, as we, as, if Jesus were here today, you'd, you'd want to look at bricks, uh, not bricks and mortar, but maybe you'd want to look at um, the building blocks of society. And you'd say, look, look, Jesus, look at the sorts of things we've achieved as human beings in our land. We have relative freedom. We have freedom of speech. We have all these things. Maybe you'd want to look at another world government or a prime minister or, or a basic human decency or all sorts of things. But the, the, the thing that Jesus wants to point out above all things as he speaks to these disciples is this. None of these things are going to last. This building here, the King Center, is not going to be here forever. Human governments, they're only temporary. It doesn't matter how big and glorious the building is, it isn't going to last. And if we genuinely want to have security in this world and through on, on into the next, we need to trust in something that's going to be forever. And that's Jesus' concern here. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. All these things are momentary. Only Jesus will remain. There are three main headings we're going to go through tonight. The first one is this. We're in a world awaiting a new birth. We're in a world awaiting a new birth. We're in a world awaiting judgment. And we're in a world awaiting the coming of Jesus. So let me look at the first one of those. A world awaiting a new birth. You know, the disciples ask for signs. What are the signs going to be that the temple's going to be destroyed and these things will become fulfilled? And Jesus does give some signs. He gives um, four in the, in the initial first, first few verses. The first sign he gives is in verse 6. He says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming that I am he and deceive many. Um, false messiahs, people claiming to be Jesus, or not Jesus, or, or a messiah. And of course, in the first century, uh, before Jesus and after Jesus, false messiahs came. People who claimed to be the, the one sent by God. And of course, they're not true. Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. Don't go to where they say. Just don't be deceived. And then there's another sign in, in 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but it's, the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The sign is there'll be constantly warring nations. Okay, and of course, in the first century, constantly warring nations. And even today, we're in that moment, aren't we? Wars and rumors of wars. If you look around the globe, wars and rumors of wars. And then the third sign, earthquakes and famines. There'll be earthquakes and famines in various places and these are the beginning of birth pains, at the end of verse B. Now these are signs that, that you can look at the world in the first century, and, and the disciples experienced all these signs. They, they experienced them. Even if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that all these things happened there in the first century. So they were happening there. And it doesn't surprise you as you read through those things, that actually these sorts of things are happening all around us today, aren't they? Um, maybe we don't see too many false messiahs, but we see lots of people claiming to, to have the real Jesus or a different Jesus or other religions claiming truth. It's still all over the world today. These, but these aren't signs to set your clock by. Okay, so we, we can understand what type of, we can misunderstand what types of signs these are. These aren't signs that we can have a look around the world, open up our newspaper and say, look, that's the earthquake. Well, that's the war. This is the big one. After this, Jesus is coming. 
That's not the type of signs they are. They're not to, to, to wind our clock to, to set our clocks to. What they are is to realize as we see these things in the world, in the world around us, we are to realize that God's clock is ticking. It's his clock, he knows the time, and it's ticking. It's ticking away. And as we see these signs, we're to know that we are living in, that, in, in the end times. But the wonderful thing is there's a little bit of hope in there at the end of verse 8 where, where um, Jesus describes these things as birth pains of a fallen world waiting redemption. Now, birth pains is a wonderful picture, isn't it? Um, birth pain, well, maybe that's the, better get that right. Birth pains are a painful picture but filled with hope, aren't they? I mean, I've got, had, um, been through two labors, okay? And both of them were 48 hours. They were, they were pretty painful for me, but they were more painful for Emily, I guarantee it. Okay? And, but but when, when those birth pains start, it's horrible, isn't it? And joyous all at the same time. The birth pains start and there's real, genuine pain. And you, as a husband, want to do everything you can to alleviate that pain. I remember going to the hospital with Emily um, when, when Gabriel was born. And we went to this hospital and it was just jam-packed with pregnant people. They just didn't have enough beds for everyone. Literally, they had pregnant women standing in the hallway, okay, waiting for beds to be free. It was crazy. But, but more than that, we had to fight for gas and air. I kid you not. There was not enough gas and air to go around to all the women who were on that labor ward. Finally, Emily got a bottle. And for, for 45 minutes, I was the hero. Okay? And, and Emily got some alleviation to the pain that she was going through. But all the way we were going through that pain, we knew it was painful. We didn't want the pain to carry on. We wanted the pain to stop. It wasn't nice. It wasn't good. We knew that Gabriel was coming. We knew he was coming. Gabriel's going to be at the end of this. This wonderful thing is going to be at the end of this. This person we've been longing to meet for nine months is going to appear. And even though we were going through those birth pains, well, Emily was going through the birth pains. Okay, even though Emily was going through those birth pains, and I was watching Emily go through those birth pains, we knew there was a joy awaiting us at the other end that would make the birth pains seem like nothing compared to the joy of holding Gabriel. And of course, that's exactly what happened. I'm sure if you asked Emily, if you asked lots of nursing mums, when the baby comes, the old has gone, the new has come. This is a joy to behold. And that's the kind of imagery that Jesus uses here. These are birth pains. So what difference does that make for us? It makes massive difference as we live in a world where we see earthquakes and Irma and, and North Korea and the U.S., it looks like the two most childish world leaders in history with their fingers poising over nuclear buttons. How are we supposed to find joy and peace and hope in the midst of this? We're to realize that these are evidences and signs that Jesus will come again and make everything right. It's painful now, and yes, we need to do all the things we can do to alleviate the pain. We need to do all the spiritual gas and air in our community. We need to do all that stuff, and we need to, 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 to fight to alleviate some of, the, some of these things that are happening to make the world a better place. We do, do need to do that. But at the same time, we need to take this message of the gospel out. We need to live in hope of this glorious truth, that these are signs that something better is coming. And we need to live in that. 
In those moments when we're tempted to despair, Jesus wants his disciples and us to see the world in the right way. And when we read the newspapers, we need to read them with hope. Of course, there's a fourth sign that comes. And that's this. Um, In verse 9, let me read it to you. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and witnesses to them. And you must, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Wherever you are, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus is warning his disciples that they will be rejected for proclaiming a message of hope the message of Jesus. Just as Jesus was arrested, handed over to to synagogues and councils and falsely accused and had to stand and proclaim the truth, his disciples would have to do that. And indeed, that is what will happen. That that is the, the way things have been set by God. He is saying, by God's design, gospel proclamation will result in persecution. In the end times, as we, as we get closer to the coming of Jesus, that is the reality. That is not strange. That is how it works. The gospel didn't come with pomp and power. It came in a manger. It came through weakness. The gospel was won through Jesus' death on a cross. And it will continue to be proclaimed through the weakness of God's people. And that's how the gospel will spread to all the world. And there we have that hope there. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. The gospel will go to all nations. It will get there. But it will get there through the suffering of God's people. But there's the other hope given that in those moments when Christians don't know what to do, when they're tried for treason for loving Jesus, the Holy Spirit will give them the words to speak. They're not to worry about it. They're to trust Jesus and trust the Holy Spirit. And I think this application is quite hard for us in the West to really believe. You see, we live in a relatively comfortable time for Christians. Um, It might feel like things are getting really uncomfortable now. We're starting to feel things heat up. But for a long time, we've lived in in relative safety and security, where we, we were able to proclaim the gospel without really fear of being arrested or thrown in prison or really having a anything confiscated. But that's not how it's been for 2,000 years for the majority of the church. Even today, as we're sitting here in relative comfort in this wonderful place that we can openly stand and preach in this way, today, 200 million believers across the globe are facing persecution. Some facing imprisonment, many facing death, many having their things taken away, their churches burnt down. Why? Because they love Jesus. And Jesus is saying this isn't a strange thing. This is how the message will be spread. This is how God has designed the gospel to work. And of course, if you read through the book of Acts, that's what you see over and over and over again. And what we're beginning to feel in a comfortable Western environment is just the beginning of of what may come. And if it does... If we face losing our jobs or losing our homes or or losing our freedom or losing our lives, that is not a strange thing. The reality is we've been living in a strange environment for a number of years by God's grace. This is the norm for gospel proclamation. 
Then it goes on in verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father a child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. It's really hard, isn't it, to hear those words? It's hard for me to think about those this week. This week I was um, with a bunch of other pastors um, who were telling me their stories about where they live, and there was one um, gentleman who told me a story of a Muslim girl who came to faith and who was chased down the street by her dad and her older brothers with axes and knives. Where did this happen? Leeds. This is happening. And, you know, as I, as I grow up, as I grow up, as my kids grow up, and I'm praying for my children, my children would come to know Jesus. Of course, I want them to know Jesus. I, 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 no, I, I, I desire for them to know Jesus at the bottom of my heart. I ache for them to know Jesus. Jesus warns me here that I mustn't love them so much that I would reject him. Because it's possible they may grow up and hate me because I love Jesus. And the loving thing to do for my children isn't to abandon Jesus because they need him. The loving thing that I could do for my children is to cling on to Jesus even if they grow to hate me for it. And Jesus is warning us about that kind of wrong love that we could have. It's painful. Well, how can we apply that? Well, one way of applying it straight away is to to know that actually when you go to the workplace tomorrow and you ask them the one question, if you do that, and um, they turn their backs on you and they they refuse to talk to you anymore, or maybe when you're around the the family dinner table again and you're feeling that cold shoulder that you get because they know you're going to talk about Jesus, and and you're afraid to speak because you're thinking, well, I'm not going to say anything until I know how to say it without offending someone. Maybe this, this is just telling us that actually, maybe we're doing something right. We shouldn't wait to find that the easiest way to share the gospel, a way that won't offend anyone, because we're told the gospel will offend even the people we love. And we're told to take this gospel to the world. So let's do that. We're going to move on to the second point, a world awaiting judgment. Um, this, is, this second section that we're looking at now is mostly directed uh, about the coming, uh, the coming destruction of the temple in Israel. I mean, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, if we go back to, to, to Mark chapter 11, um, Jesus approaches the temple and he curses a fig tree. You may remember that story. And he looks for fruit and there's none there and he curses the fig tree. No one shall eat from you again. And then he goes into Jerusalem. Uh, and later on, he tells the disciples to remember the fig tree as he's talking about the temple. See, what's, what's happening is the king has come the king has come to his people who've heard the word, who've been given, entrusted with the, with the powerful word of God, who've had prophets come to them over and over again to give them the truth of God. And then the king that they promised has come. Jesus has come, and he's coming into the temple to see if there'll be any fruit for him to find. And what does he find? He doesn't find faith. He finds rejection. And as a result of that, God's judgment comes on Israel comes on Jerusalem, comes on the temple. And he describes this judgment in verses 14 to 20. This is the destruction of the temple. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go um, go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let the one in the field go back and get their cloak. 
How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Because those, who, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. And no one ever, it never be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So a few years before that, um, there was a Jewish rebellion that, that pushed Rome out of, um, out of Jerusalem. And they celebrated for a couple of years, thinking everything would be okay. And then one day, the Roman armies came down and they surrounded the city, north, east, south, west. And they barricaded the doors and they locked people up in Jerusalem. When there were more people in Jerusalem than ever during the Passover time, maybe three million Jews gathered in Jerusalem. None of them can get out. No food or resources could get in. And the horror that is described in the ancient historians is is just beyond description of of women being so hungry that they cannibalized their own children. That when, when the Romans finally did break over the barricades into the city after this desperate situation... They, they were marching over dead bodies, piles of dead bodies. Over 1.1 million Jews were killed in the onslaught, and many became slaves. And, and one Roman soldier, against the orders of the emperor, threw a burning torch into the center of the temple, and the temple goes up in flames. And it was described as such an onslaught that even the emperor was shocked. He he gave orders to to stop the utter destruction, but he couldn't stop the utter destruction. The the, the destruction that came on Jerusalem, on the temple, because it refused to recognize Jesus, was utterly devastating. To the point that Judaism has not really uh, been the same religion to this day. It it revolves around the temple, around sacrifice. And for 2,000 years, the temple has not been there. Because God has, has turned his back on that nation, on that situation. God is, God's presence is no longer found in Jerusalem, in the temple. It's found where Jesus is. Now, there's a couple of things we could say about this. One is, is this. It, this happened in history, and Jesus said it was going to happen. And because believers actually believed this, many escaped, and they fled to the hills, just like Jesus told them to do. And we can look back at this event, and we can say, Jesus said this was going to happen, and it happened. We can have confidence in what he, what he tells us about the future. So that's one thing we can gain from this. But there's another thing we can gain from this, is just to see how serious a thing the judgment of God is. See, back then, Jesus came to judge his people. And they rejected him. And we're told that Jesus is going to come again, not just to judge Israel, but to judge the whole world. His gospel has been proclaimed and is being proclaimed today right across the globe. People are hearing about Jesus. He's making himself known. And one day he's going to come and he's going to judge the world in his righteousness. And will he find faith on the earth? And an important thing that we need to think about is, are we ready for that? Are we ready, prepared for the judgment of God to come? Because it will come. I remember before I was a Christian... Um, I was raised in a Christian household, and I, on, on some level, I believed that, that in this stuff. And I remember asking my dad, 
you know, Dad, when is, it, when is Jesus really going to come? And what I was really was saying was, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And when this sign happens out there, I'll know it's going to be quick. Then I'll repent. That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't give us signs like that. He gives us signs that tells us the clock is ticking. And the question I realized was, am I ready now? And let me just throw this question out there. The judgment of God is severe for those who reject him. Are you ready? Are you prepared? The disciples were told to flee from the coming judgment. And the way you flee from the judgment is to to run to Jesus and find forgiveness and love and acceptance and grace. So it's a a world-waiting judgment. And the last thing I want to say is we're looking at a people waiting for the coming of Jesus. A people waiting for the coming of Jesus. I think up to this point, um, Jesus has mainly been talking about answering questions about the first century, although as we've seen, they apply to us as well. But now Jesus really does move to that second part of the question where he talks about how all things will be fulfilled. When will all these things be accomplished? And Jesus answers in three different ways. He tells his disciples three things about his second coming. The first thing is it will be glorious. Second thing, it will be soon. And the third thing is you can't know when. It will be glorious, it will be soon, and you can't know when. So, it will be glorious. In verse 26, at that time you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It's not a quiet second coming. When Jesus comes, everyone will see it. Every eye will see Jesus and behold his glory. And you won't miss it. The power of heaven coming in all its might. A truly glorified Jesus shining brighter than the sun, bursting through the sky. Every eye will see this glorious coming. And we're told that he will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds of the earth. He will gather his people. Not one will be lost. I love um, um, superhero movies. And one thing that seems to happen in the past few years is you get these these trailers that that start two or three years before the film even comes out. Have you seen those things? So I remember for Batman v Superman, a film that I was really excited by, um, have you know. The first trailer came out in 2001 or whatever it was. Okay, and I watched it and I was excited. Then trailer after trailer after trailer trickled out a long way before the film was actually released. And when it was released... It was a flop. It didn't live up to the expectations. But Jesus' coming is not like that. It's had 2,000 years of build-up. And still, when it comes, when it arrives, when Jesus bursts through the clouds in glory, everyone will be amazed. Everyone will stand in awe. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're told. It won't be a disappointment to believers. You will not be disappointed when you see him coming. When Paul describes it, um, the glory of the second coming, he puts it this way. Find my notes. Sorry. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For this creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed on that day when Jesus returns. It will be glorious. But the second thing to say is that it will be soon. I mean, look at Jesus' language. He says, in the days following that distress, in verse 24, um, so he's describing, look, as soon as you see the temple destroyed, you know this thing is coming. At that time, he'll send his angels, he'll send his angels to the four corners of his elect to gather those who stand firm to the end. I don't know why I put that there, sorry. Um, but the end of verse 29 and 30, then you will see things happening. You know that the time is near, right at the door. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And what he's basically saying is this. When you see the temple destroyed in your lifetime, know that my second coming will be soon. He's saying, he's describing it as if it's one minute to midnight. He's saying, look, it's right there. The, 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 the second hand is just about to click. We're at that point and, and live in that expectation. As you read through the New Testament, that's the kind of expectation that the believers had. That Jesus could come at any moment. Any, any moment. I mean, we, we might have the next second, let alone the next day or week. Jesus could come at any moment. And I think for us, it's important that we take that on board. Because we live in a world that's been a little bit jaded by people who've said that Jesus would return on certain dates. I mean, even in this past week, I had a number of... Um, messages put on my page on Facebook that told me that Jesus was going to come back on the 23rd of September. You haven't got long, folks. You know, but remember, that's not why, what the types of signs that Jesus gives. You know, we get a bit jaded by those things, and we tend to treat Jesus like a distant meteorite. I mean, that's how we, we you know, like people say, we talk to an atheist about the destruction of the world. They say, of course the world's going to end one day. In billions of years, maybe, one of those meteorites that's flying out there is going to hit us. And then, then that'll be the end, but that's so far away we don't have to worry about it now. And that's kind of how we approach as Christians the second coming, often. Because we've waited 2,000 years, we think, well, you know what? Jesus will come back one day, but it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Those are the kinds of things that we think in our hearts. They don't necessarily slip out of our mouths, but that's how we act. But Jesus is not a coming meteorite he is a patient savior, not waiting for, he doesn't want one person to be lost. And we treat his patience with, with, with um, ungratefulness and ingratitude and impatience ourselves. I'm grateful that Jesus didn't come back on September the 8th, 1998, because I wouldn't be saved. Jesus is holding off today for the sake that someone would come to faith. He's holding off Tomorrow, if he holds off, for someone to come to faith. That's what he's doing. He's patient, not wanting any to be lost. But we are living in one moment to midnight. So it will be glorious. It's coming soon. And we cannot know when. The last point. Jesus gives a number of um, illustrations at the end of his um, talk here. Um, the main one being, he talks about um, there's a man who goes away in verse 34 who leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, because um, watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or the rooster crows are at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. For what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And of course, he says in verse 32, in unequivocal terms, 
about the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. There you go. If anyone tells you they know when the end of the world is coming, even Jesus didn't know in, the, in, what, what, in, in his first coming. If Jesus didn't know it then, what makes you think you can figure it out now? It's coming, but we don't know when. The master has gone. He's left us things to do to reach the world for him. So let's be busy about that task and wait for his coming back. Let me have one more thing to say at the end here. Um, a number of years ago, there was a, a, a burglary. Well, it wasn't really a burglary in, in America. I'm not even sure of the town. Uh, basically, there were some thieves who, during the night, broke into an expensive jewelry shop. And they thought they'd have a bit of fun. They didn't steal anything. But they changed the t- prices on the tickets, which is basically what they did. So they, they, they saw uh, an expensive ring, and they put a cheap price tag on it. They saw a cheap watch and put an expensive price tag on it. And the next day, they... They just, the, the, the staff arrived into the, sh- into, the building pl- into the shop and they started selling their goods like they did every day. But you can imagine the chaos as someone walks to the counter with a solid gold multi-crested diamond ring for $1.25. Another man walks up with a fake plastic Rolex for $4,000 and everyone's confused. I mean, what's going on here? You see... It's like that when Jesus returns. When he returns, all price tags change. All value in everything will alter. Your gadgets will be worth nothing. My gadgets will be worth nothing. Um, Our fancy buildings will be worth nothing. Our clothes will be worth nothing. The opinion of our friends and our families will be worth nothing. Everything will change. We're living in a world that's passing away. And every earthquake, every rumor of war is telling us that it's coming soon. We're in that time. Jesus is coming. We need to live like that today. Live as if what matters matters. And what matters is Jesus and his gospel to the nations. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus' words here. We thank you for um, the, the clarity that he gives us. The reminder that one day you are going to put everything right and it will be absolutely wonderful. And every A&E department empty. Um, every homeless person housed every sickness dealt with, every tear wiped away. We thank you, Lord, that that's true. We can trust it because Jesus was dead and he rose again. Lord, as we think about the reality of of your second coming, we also bear in mind the reality of the judgment to come. And we think of those people that we love. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage to continue to speak to them about the gospel. Regardless of their... Um, the way that they respond to us. I pray, Lord, that we would act in love, holding out hope and joy and peace to them every single opportunity we have, opening our arms to give them Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would believe that you are coming any moment and that we would live in light of that, realizing that, that when you come, everything changes and that we would live as if the only thing that matters is that you love us and that you call us your own. 
Lord, I do pray for anyone here today that is not ready for that coming. Lord, if they haven't given their lives to you, Father, they would trust in you. They would turn to you to be saved and escape the judgment to come. In Jesus' name, amen.